Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. This morning, we are back in 1 Peter chapter 3. For those of you who weren't here last week, we began looking at 1 Peter 3, 18-22 last week. This passage is perhaps one of the most challenging and hard-to-understand passages Definitely in 1 Peter, but perhaps in all of the Bible. And so last week we looked at the overall message of this passage. And then we focused in on verse 19, where Peter says that Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And we did a lot in that section. So if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to that sermon on the website. But the gist of the passage, the gist of what Peter is saying is that he is comforting and encouraging believers with the victory of Jesus. Jesus did not just suffer and die. He also rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to sit on a throne where He has conquered all His and our enemies. That's a summary of what we talked about last week. But we didn't cover the entire passage. Uh, We talked about most of the passage, but today we're going to look particularly at verse 21, and what Peter has to say about baptism. And this is yet another topic that is challenging for us. It's challenging in a different way than last week's section was. Probably very few of you had an opinion before last week's sermon about whether Jesus went and proclaimed to the evil spirits in the place of the dead, or went and proclaimed to those who were living at the time of Noah. But I imagine it's a bit different than with baptism. Plenty of you probably have opinions about baptism. You've thought and read and discussed whether we should baptize the children, the infant children of believers. You've probably had a debate or two about how we should apply water to someone in baptism. And those are fine. Those are good things to discuss. We won't talk about those things today, although we will discuss some nuances. We will be clarifying some of what Scripture says about baptism so that we can understand God's Word and understand the things that He has given us. But we need to be cautious as we listen and even as we discuss baptism. This isn't just an academic topic to be debated and critiqued and discussed. Baptism is a gift that Jesus has given to His church. And Jesus does not give meaningless gifts. All His gifts are meant to bring us comfort and encouragement to holiness and to draw us closer into fellowship with Him and to prepare us for the life that is to come. And baptism's no different. It's not just an idea. It's a gift that Jesus Christ has given to those who will follow Him. And so as we hear what this portion of God's Word says about baptism, we want our hearts to be prepared to receive it in that way. We need to be discerning, we need to be thoughtful, but we also need to come to Jesus with open hands, ready to receive the encouragement to holiness and the comfort and the preparation for the life to come that He has for us. So before we hear from God's Word, let's ask that He would prepare our hearts in that way. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know Your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds 
our hearts and our wills, that we may hear Your Word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. We're going to read the whole passage again today and then focus in on verse 21. So I'll begin in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. This is the Word of the Lord. As we work our way through this verse, really, today, we're going to ask four questions. They're on your outline that's inserted in your bulletin, if you'd like to follow along there. Four questions. Why does Peter bring up baptism right now, at this point in this letter? Secondly, how does baptism correspond to the flood? Thirdly, how does baptism now save you? And then fourthly, we'll briefly look at how this connects to the main point of this passage that we talked about last week. So the first question is, why does Peter bring up baptism right now in this letter? He's been talking about the suffering of believers in this world. And then in the previous section, verses 13 to 17, which we dealt with before Easter, he says that we must be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us, even if it brings about more suffering. To encourage his readers in this, Peter points to Jesus' victory over sin and death and Satan. But what does baptism have to do with that? Before we can answer that question, we need to know why Peter starts talking about Noah and the flood. Remember last week we were reminded how horrible the days of Noah were. Genesis 6-5 says, "...the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." This led Peter to talk about those spirits in prison who disobeyed in the days of Noah. But then in the second half of verse 20, Peter shifts his focus from the evil spirits, the evil generation at Noah's time, to Noah's family. He says, They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Peter turns his focus from the massive majority of those who were disobedient and wicked and filled with debauchery at the time of Noah to the tiny minority that followed God. The tiny, righteous minority. Only eight people were saved in that generation. And Peter does this in the midst of a letter that is written to elect exiles who have been rejected by the world around them and are now maligned, slandered, and reviled by that world. 
God's people feel very small as Peter is writing to them. They're alienated and marginalized. And to encourage them, Peter brings up a time when things were even worse. Think about the days of Noah, he says. Think of how marginalized and rejected they were when there were only eight of them in the midst of that twisted and crooked generation. And yet, God was able even to save them. Peter brings up the story of Noah as a reminder that God can save His people even when they are overwhelmed by their insignificance and the hostility of the world around them. This is an encouragement to us as well. The world around us is different than it was even 50 years ago. We can debate how Christian America was from the beginning, but there is no doubting that things have shifted. Things have changed. It's evident that fewer people around us profess to believe in Jesus than they did in past generations. The moral sentiments of popular culture certainly do not align with the Christian faith. And it's at times like this that we in the church can feel like we are losing. We can feel like God's kingdom is shrinking, not growing. We can feel like the gates of hell are prevailing against the church. And we need to hear Peter's words. There was a time when the world was worse than it is right now. There was a time when God's people were much more marginalized than they are right now. And do you know what God did? He saved them. He saved them, Peter says, through water. And that brings us to the second question. How does baptism correspond to the flood? Look at verse 21 with me. Excuse me. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this. The Greek word Peter is using here is antitupos or antitype. Elsewhere, it's translated copy. The flood is the original. Baptism is a copy. The flood is the type. Baptism is the antitype. It's a good translation to say that baptism corresponds to the flood. These two things are like each other. But how? How are baptism and the flood like each other? Let's start with the obvious. Peter says that eight persons were brought safely through water. The flood involved water. Baptism, as you just saw, involves water. So they are similar in that way. Is that where the similarities end? I don't think so. There are two important things that are happening in the flood that we can easily miss when we just go through children's stories about the flood. First, the flood isn't just a nice story with animals coming two by two and Noah building a big boat. The flood is a story of judgment. It's a story of God judging sin. The water that God sends is an instrument of death and judgment on sinful humanity. But there's another side to the flood. The water comes upon the earth and Noah and his family are saved. But we need to realize that saved doesn't just mean that they avoided death. They were delivered from the flood, yes, but they were also delivered by 
the flood. They got into the ark in a world filled with sin and debauchery and violence. And they got out of the ark in a world that initially at least was free from those things. God's enemies had been defeated and his people had been delivered into a new creation. If you look at the story in Genesis 8 through 9, when Noah and his family come out of the ark, it reads like a repeat of the creation story. Remember that in the beginning, in Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth is covered in water. This is what it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then from that watery chaos, God brought beauty and order to His creation. After the flood, He does the same thing. Noah looks out and sees water covering the earth. He even sends out a dove, which later is the image of the Holy Spirit, to go to and fro over the water. Eventually, God causes the water to subside, and Noah and his family come into God's new creation, his new world. God even begins by giving them the exact same command that he gave Adam and Eve in the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now we know that the flood ultimately did not answer the problem of sin. Noah himself was still sinful. God's new creation fell into sin again. But the flood becomes a type for us, a picture. God sends His waters upon the earth. And for those who reject God, they are the waters of judgment. But for those who are God's people, they are the waters of deliverance, blessing, and new life. Notice, this is not the last time this happens in the Bible, even in the Old Testament. God saves Israel out of Egypt. And what do they do? They get trapped against a body of water, the Red Sea. God miraculously allows them to pass through the water when He parts the Red Sea. But do you remember what happens next? What happens when Israel gets through? Pharaoh and the Egyptian army chase after them. They also attempt to pass through the water. But God says this to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back on the Egyptians. And Moses did. And the Egyptians, those who had enslaved and oppressed God's people for 400 years, were destroyed by the waters of judgment. God's people passed through the water and came out to new life on the other side, free from the oppression of their enemies. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, looks back on the Red Sea crossing, and he calls it a baptism. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-2, Our fathers were all under the cloud, meaning the pillar of cloud just before they crossed the Red Sea, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so when Peter brings up the flood, he has this background understanding that God saves his people by bringing them safely through water to new life on the other side, while he drowns their enemies in judgment. Peter says baptism corresponds to this. What God first did through the flood, he now does through baptism. But if baptism is judgment... 
how can we make it safely through? How do we know that we are like Noah and his family and not like the sinful generation who received God's judgment? Because just as Noah and his family took refuge in the ark, we have refuge from God's judgment in Jesus Christ. Everyone who trusts in Jesus is said to be in Christ, just as Noah and his family were in the ark. So as the waters of judgment pound around us, we are protected by Jesus. Jesus even makes reference to this in his ministry. In Mark 10, right after Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection a third time, James and John ask him if they can sit on his right hand and his left hand when he comes to the throne. And in response, he says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath, the judgment of God that will be poured out on him at the cross. On the cross, Jesus is pounded by God's judgment, just as the ark was pounded by the flood. And all those who hide themselves in Him will pass through safely. Brothers and sisters, if you have been baptized into Jesus Christ and are in Christ, there is not one bit of judgment that can get past Him and come upon you. He has taken it all upon Himself. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The full judgment of God for your sins has come upon Him. Not only has Jesus taken our judgment in His baptism, but He also promises to cleanse us of our sin and to make us into new creations. We say this every week after the confession of sin. If anyone is in Christ, new creation the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Acts 22, Ananias says to Paul after he has been confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. I said that the waters of God's judgment drowned God's enemies the enemies of the people of God, so that they came out to freedom and new life on the other side. This happened in the flood with Noah and his family. This happened when God saved Israel out of Egypt. But what is the true enemy of God's people? It's our sin. Your sin is your greatest enemy. Your sin is what enslaves and oppresses you, and your sin is what God pours the cleansing waters of judgment on in your baptism. The Bible often talks about this by referring to the old self, or the old man, and the new self, or Christ. We are commanded to take off the old man and put on the new man, who is Christ. Paul says that this is what happens fundamentally in your baptism. Listen to his argument in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Who is our enemy that is drowned in our baptism? It's us. It's our old selves, the sinful nature that clings so closely. God has poured the waters of His judgment on that person so that you, if you trust in Christ, can go free. Peter in our passage today tells us to look beyond the visible reality to the spiritual reality. He says it isn't just the washing away of dirt from the body, as if that was all that was being accomplished in baptism. But it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. This is the cleansing that's being pictured in baptism. A cleansing of our consciences. Just as God cleansed the earth of His enemies in the flood, so now He cleanses us of our sin in baptism. This is how baptism corresponds to the flood. It's a picture of the waters of judgment that for Christians comes not on us, but on Christ and on our sin. Christ's death has taken every last bit of the judgment that we deserved. And it's also of the cl- a picture of the cleansing that brings about new life, new creation. The cleansing not of some enemy out there, but of our own sin so that we might be made into the new creations in Christ. That is how baptism corresponds to the flood. And you may have heard all of that and given a hearty amen in your heart, at least. You may see all of those things pictured in baptism. That judgment that came upon Christ instead of us, our cleansing from sin, the resurrection life we now live in, But you still have a question. Because Peter doesn't seem to think that baptism merely pictures or signifies those things. He seems to be saying that baptism accomplishes those things. Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism saves you, Peter says. So the question you may be asking is, how does baptism save me? First, we need to get straight. Peter does say, baptism saves you. There are some words in between there, but that is what Peter is saying. And this is actually very much in line with the way the rest of the New Testament talks about baptism. When the biblical authors speak about baptism, they usually speak about it as if it has accomplished something. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah whom the people listening had crucified. When they cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I already mentioned Acts 22 Verse 16, where Ananias says to Paul, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. 
Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And again, we just read this in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the ordinary way that Scripture speaks of baptism. But this gives us two questions. Does baptism always accomplish those things? And then how does baptism accomplish those things? To help us with those questions, I want to zoom out a little bit. We're looking at a particular verse in 1 Peter, but we want to know what God teaches on the whole about baptism. So I'd like us to get a little help from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So most of you know, we do not believe that this confession is on par with Scripture. It is not the words of God, but it was written by men who had filled themselves up with Scripture and sought to teach clearly what God's Word says in summary. So the first help that they give us is about the sacraments in general. They talk about the two parts of every sacrament or every ordinance of God, the sign and the thing signified. This is what they say. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Once it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. The sign is the physical part. In baptism, water. Water being applied to a person. That's the sign. What is the thing signified in baptism? We've talked about a couple of them that Peter focuses on today, about the waters of judgment that we pass through and about coming into new creation, being cleansed of sin. Their answer is meant to summarize everything that Scripture says it signifies. This is what they say. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of a person's engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of the person's giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. So there is a sign, water being applied to a person, like we just saw with Julio a few minutes ago, and there is a thing signified. In a word, all the benefits of salvation. And what that section said is that God has united those things to one another in baptism. And because those two things are united, Scripture attributes the name and attributes of the one to the other. So Scripture has no problem attributing the thing signified, salvation, to the sign, baptism. Because God has united the two together. And they say a word about how it is that the, the sacraments accomplish anything. First, they say how it doesn't. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. There's no power in the sign alone. We don't use holy water or magic water. I got it from the tap right before service. When we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, these are not 
special bread and wine. They're ordinary bread and wine, and we don't believe that God is changing them into anything when we take the Lord's Supper. These are ordinary things. They're simple things. So there's no power in them to accomplish anything. This is exactly what Peter means when he says, it is not as a removal of dirt from the body. The water, the sign itself, isn't doing the work. It doesn't have any power. Where is the power? It's in Jesus. Peter says, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Most of us, when we get nervous at that phrase, baptism saves you, we are probably nervous that Peter means baptism in and of itself saves you. Or maybe baptism saves you apart from Jesus. It doesn't. It can't. It has no power in and of itself. You can only be saved by Jesus. You can only be saved by trusting in Him. When the waters of judgment come upon you, you must take refuge in the ark of Christ. There is no refuge anywhere else. To be cleansed of your sin, you must call out to Christ. That's what Ananias says to Paul. He says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. And it's what Peter means when he says that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So the power of baptism is Christ. So does baptism always accomplish those things? No. If someone is baptized and never trusts in Jesus, they will not be saved. Brother, sister, if you are baptized and you do not trust in Jesus, you will not be saved. Baptism isn't a good luck charm or a magic incantation. Directly addressing this, the confession says, although it is a great sin to contemn, which means to despise, or neglect baptism, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed to it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it. Or, that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. God's sacraments aren't magic. There are people who have the sign of baptism but do not have the thing signified. We don't take refuge in our baptism. We take refuge in Christ. However, notice the words at the beginning of what I just read. They say it is a great sin to despise or neglect baptism. Baptism is a gift of God to His people. And as I said at the beginning, God doesn't give us meaningless gifts. He doesn't give us gifts that are pointless and can be dispensed with. And so, because God has united these two things together, baptism does accomplish something. It only accomplishes it when you trust in Jesus. There is no baptism that saves you apart from faith in Christ. Yet Peter says baptism saves you. Listen to what the confession says in summary after all the caveats to be sure we don't think baptism is magic or does anything apart from Christ. It says the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time when it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding... By the right use of this ordinance, the grace promise is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred. 
by the Holy Spirit to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in His appointed time. The power is in the Holy Spirit. It is only truly given to those who trust in Jesus, and it's in God's own timing. But the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred. Brothers and sisters, baptism is a gift from God. We are fools if we think that God's gift is any good to us without clinging to God Himself. But we are ungrateful children if we reject the good gifts God is trying to give us. Peter speaks to us as Christians in a hostile world where we are sojourners and exiles. In the midst of this hostile world, you have been born again to a living hope. Your baptism is a sign and seal of that living hope. When life brings suffering your way, and you are tempted to think that it is the suffering of judgment, remember that in your baptism you have hidden yourself in Jesus Christ. The full weight of God's judgment for your sins came down on Him with none left to come upon you. Who is there to harm you? Peter asks. No one is the answer that he gives for those who trust in Christ. And as you look at the sin which clings so closely in your life, remember that all of you who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. Your old self was crucified with Him, and He has cleansed you of your sins. So walk in the newness of life that Christ has given you. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Would you all pray with me? Father, we need You. We need You every hour. We need You to teach us. We need You to soften our hearts. So I pray that as we read Your Word, as we read even difficult parts of Your Word, that You would cause us to cling to Jesus Christ. That we would see in Him all our safety. That we would see in Him the answer to all of our sins. That we would see in Him all the new life, the eternal life that You have given us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.